Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 36, the book of Revelation, chapters 16 and 17. We're going to begin today uh, by finishing up chapter 16 and then moving on into this mind-bending Revelation chapter 17. And I want to make you aware that for the next few chapters we are going to necessarily enter a greater level of detail. And so a greater level of depth of explanation. Slicing this onion thinner and thinner, so to speak, due to the complex nature of the subjects that are covered. Without doing so, we simply cannot accomplish what I believe we can accomplish. Now, as I was praying about how to present to you matters in the end times in general, especially beginning about this point in our study, matters that have been interpreted in so many different ways, each way having its own merits, but also its own problems, I kind of got this mental vision of standing on a street corner on a foggy day, barely able to make out shapes that stood just a few feet ahead of me. I knew something was there because I could hear faint sounds, but what accompanies dense fog is also its ability to muffle sound. So I couldn't be sure exactly what I was hearing. And as some time passed, the fog began to lift a little bit. Now I could see the shapes. They were people. Still, I couldn't tell male from female what they were wearing, where they might be going, how big or little they were, practically any detail for that matter. And with the passing of a little more time, the fog continued to thin. Now I could see a few general features about these people. For those nearest to me, I could make out what gender a person was by what they were wearing, maybe by the length of their hair, which, and I could tell if they had a briefcase or a purse or maybe had a bag of groceries in their arms. Um, you know, things that give me clues for what their roles and their various activities might be. For those people shaped standing further away, I could tell if they were moving or stationary, but not much else. To know more, I just have to wait. Just going to have to wait till the fog on its own schedule finally dissipated enough that I could clearly perceive the thousand little details, the visual clues and cues that go together to create a full picture of not only where I am, but what's going on all around me and what involvement all these people might have in the scene that is being played out. I think this is how we must approach Revelation and John's visions. So, what stage of the fog clearing are we in? I'm not sure. But I do know that it is not as thick as it was when John first received these divine visions. It's not as thick as it was when the pilgrims fled Europe for the new world. It's not as thick as it was before the nation of Israel was shockingly reborn overnight in 1948. So we can know a lot more about end times matters than believers in any of those past generations. But I can also tell you with full confidence that the fog remains a little thicker than what some commentators and authors suggest with their self-assured predictions of end times timelines and events that even sometimes include names and dates. Therefore, we're going to continue in the approach that what can be reasonably and honestly discerned from John's words 
will be taken in relation to what history has revealed for us to know at this point. And that which remains so hazy that too little detail is available to arrive at a solid conclusion we're going we'll explore. I'll offer perhaps two or three of the most likely possibilities acknowledging it may turn out that none of those possibilities is correct. So with that, let's read about the final judgment of the 21 judgments now announced in Revelation. This would be the seventh bowl judgment. Turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 16. Revelation chapter 16. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, the page is 1547. I heard a loud voice from the sanctuary say to the seven angels, Go, pour out on earth the seven bowls of God's fury. I want to skip now. Let's skip down to 17. Right quick. Just turn your page. So there's going to be seven bowls. Now we go to 17. Here's the seventh one. The seventh one poured out his bowl on the air. And a loud voice came out from the temple from the throne saying, It is done. There were flashes of lightning, voices and peals of thunder. There was a massive earthquake such as has never occurred since mankind's been on earth, so violent was the earthquake. The great city was split into three parts. The cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babel the Great and made her drink the wine from the cup of his raging fury. Every island fled, no mountains were to be found, and huge 70-pound hailstones fell on people from the sky. But the people cursed God for the plague of hail, that it was such a terrible plague. Now the seventh bold judgment is said to directly affect the air. How did it affect the air? Well, we're not told. And as with so much of Revelation, various Bible commentators have come up with various solutions to what the judgment on the air indicates, such as a mention in Ephesians 2 that Satan is the prince of the power of the air, or that the air was darkened by the smoke coming up from the abyss, but for me none of these are satisfying. The answer to this issue of God's judgment on the air goes back to something we've discussed in the last few lessons. The well-established belief in John's day that all things that exist consist of some relative mixture of earth, water, fire, and air. These were known as the four elements. And as a reminder, this scientific theory that was taken as absolute fact by most people in New Testament times was first established around five centuries earlier than John. It was also accepted in Jewish culture and it lasted even within the church until a couple of centuries ago. So with the seventh bowl judgment upon the air, the bowl judgments have now inflicted God's wrath upon humankind by means of targeting all four elements of nature. With the point being that God is sovereign over everything that exists. Now I want to be sure there's no misunderstanding. Okay, certainly the supposed four elements belief was not true. And the Bible was not trying to teach it as truth. Rather, we have to grasp that the way that God communicates with humans in every era is by means of employing familiar signs and symbols and terms and illustrations and beliefs as used within the culture of the one or several to whom he is speaking. So when the idea is to explain to John that God would disrupt every part of our environment 
including nature and the cosmos, in his process of judging wicked mankind, he tells it to John, using the terms and the familiar mental pictures of John's day. If John lived in our time, in the United States, God would have communicated the same essential points and facts using entirely different terms and word pictures. So our job is to try to understand what those words meant to John or even to Jewish culture in general in the first century then transfer that meaning to similar concepts in our modern times. Now in verse 17 we're told that a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. Now thinking back to our previous lesson, recall that the setting of this particular vision revolves mostly around God's heavenly temple. And that in order to get a good understanding of the intent, we need to compare the words used to describe God's invisible temple in heaven with the physical, tangible, earthly temple in Jerusalem. The first thing we should notice is that while the English word temple is what is usually used here in our Bibles, in fact, that's not a great translation. The Greek word is naos, and it means only the sanctuary portion of the temple. That is, it refers specifically to the holy place and the holy of holies. Now since back in chapter 15, when the bold judgment processes began, we learned that the heavenly sanctuary was emptied of all spiritual beings except for the presence of God. And he was, in the, we're told, in the form of a smoke cloud. Then it can only be God who declares, It is done! speaking from the place of the heavenly sanctuary, when the seventh bowl is poured out. And of course it means that this is the final one of the 21 judgments he's unleashed. There's going to be no more. This is then followed in the next verse with standard biblical symbols indicating both God's presence and his wrath. Lightning, voices, thunder, and earthquake very much like it was on Mount Sinai shortly after Israel's exit from Egypt. However, as it has been with each bold judgment, the effect of each calamity is felt worldwide, not just locally. So the earthquake is described as something greater than has ever occurred in mankind's history. Then in verse 19 we read of some of the results of this massive tremor. And the first effect is said to be that the great city was split into three parts. What's the great city? Well, there's generally three different answers offered for this. It is Jerusalem, or it is Babylon, or it is Rome. No matter which of these three you might choose to accept as the, the great city. Each of them has merit, each has its problems. And however you might answer it has much to do with the overall end times doctrine that you've learned, as well as having a direct effect on how you understand the use of the term great city in the next chapter we're going to study chapter 17. Now we could camp here for a long time, but we won't. Can I have mercy? <clears throat> Instead, I'll try to sum up the reasons for why these three cities are the suspected candidates of being the great city. First of all, Jerusalem. Back in Revelation 11, we read this. 11.8 and their dead bodies, this is speaking of the two witnesses, will lie in the main street of the great city, 
whose name to reflect its spiritual condition is Sodom in Egypt, the city where their Lord was executed on a stake. Clearly, in Revelation 11.8, the great city refers to Jerusalem because that's where their Lord was executed on a stake. Christ certainly was not executed in Babylon or Rome. But also notice that God sees Jerusalem's spiritual condition as equal with that of Sodom and Egypt. It's about as bad as it gets. And so it's worthy of judgment. So the term great city does not mean that God sees a city as having exceptional merit. Rather, it is a term that means that it's very important. Maybe it's very influential in some negative or positive way. Now, some commentators say that because the next words after great city in Revelation 16 are, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great, that the terms great cities, cities of the nations, and Babylon the great are three different entities that lay in apposition to one another. That is, taken together, they form all this being judged. So the great city then represents Israelites, the cities of the nations represents Gentiles, and Babylon the Great represents the wicked and idolatrous world system in general. So there's one view. The second view is that the great city is Babylon. That the great city is Babylon and not Jerusalem is because it is Babylon the Great that's being judged. And Babylon is the capital of Babylon the Great. Now, judging Babylon is a main theme uh, of what's been going on in Revelation and what's going to continue to go on. Therefore, the great city of Babylon, as well as the great cities of the Gentiles, will be massively affected by the earthquake and all this is because in doing so God was remembering Babylon the Great which is symbolic uh, is a symbolic term meaning the entire evil world system which is comprised of Babylon and the great cities of the Gentile nations in Revelation 18 we haven't got there yet but we will read in verse 10 standing at a distance for fear of her torment they will say oh no the great city, Babel, that mighty city, in a single hour your judgment has come. So here, the great city seems to be directly identified as Babylon. Now the third view is that the great city is Rome. And I'm going to tell you, this is based almost entirely on church doctrine that the Antichrist's kingdom will be a reborn Roman Empire. But also because historically in John's day the only city that might have been called the great city was Rome. There is nothing scripturally spoken about Rome in this regard. So for the time being I'm kind of removing Rome from the list of likely candidates. So which of these is right then? Which of the three candidates might be the great city. And why doesn't God just identify the great city rather than letting us struggle with it? Since all three were in existence and thriving in John's day. Well, let's begin with Jerusalem. Notice something interesting about the quote I used from Revelation 11.8 that the great city has a name that reflects its spiritual condition of Sodom and Egypt. Now this is difficult to comprehend because the name Jerusalem, Yerushalayim, means something like city of peace since Shalem comes from the root word Shalom and Shalom means peace. However, we must also take into account that among the enormous population of the Arab-speaking world, 
The name of this city is not Jerusalem. It's Al-Quds. And it means the Holy One. And depending on which Muslim sect you ask, the Holy One is referring either to Allah or to Muhammad, the founder of Islam. Now what marks Sodom and Egypt as the antithesis of Israel is that they were Israel's enemies. And they were idolatrous. They were constantly trying to thwart God's will. Now, that well describes Islam. And in our time, the eastern section of the city of Jerusalem is almost entirely Muslim. So might it be that during the time of the judgments and revelation that Jerusalem, or at least a major part of it, will officially be called Al-Quds and not Jerusalem any longer? as an accommodation to Islam in order for there to be peace. That of course is just my speculation. But we're going to add some fuel to that fire a little bit later on. On the other hand, from a scriptural standpoint, Jerusalem has already faced judgment by God through an earthquake all the way back in Revelation chapter 11. Remember when a tenth of the city collapsed and 7,000 people were killed. In fact, oddly enough, that earthquake was said to have been confined to Jerusalem and its local suburbs. Very odd. Now already rebuttal to this point is that we're told in Zechariah 14 that when God comes and he sets foot on the Mount of Olives, part of greater Jerusalem, what's going to happen? The mountain's going to split in half, Right? Half the mountain moves in one direction, half the mountain moves in the other. And to that I say true. Yet here in Revelation 16.9 we're told that the great city was split into three parts. And not the two parts that is in, are envisioned in Zechariah. Therefore all things considered... I don't believe the term great city, as it's used in Revelation 16.9, is referring to Jerusalem. Now as for Rome being the great city, again, there's just simply no scriptural evidence. As I said earlier, the idea of the great city being Rome is born entirely from man-made church doctrine based on the belief that the Antichrist kingdom will be a reconstituted Roman Empire. And while I understand the reasoning, behind that belief. As time goes on, I'm less convinced of that possibility than ever. Now as for the great city being Babylon. If we take Babylon to mean the real, original, or rebuilt city of Babylon that will rise like a phoenix and become the world's new center of finance and commerce sometime before the Antichrist comes into power, then I am highly skeptical because it is too fanciful and without any merit. Such a thing is not impossible, but it's sure highly unlikely given the world conditions and trends of our time. The speculation that the Middle East, war-torn, backward, knee-deep in poverty, would somehow become the financial capital of the globe seems awfully fanciful. However, the term Babylon by John's era had become a standard metaphor for idolatry and wickedness and it was also a standard Jewish epithet for Rome. So I think the future city of Babylon is to be taken as symbolic of whatever city in the world might become the financial and commercial capital of the Antichrist's one world kingdom. As of today, there are two capitals, New York City and London. But we don't know what they might be in the future. Therefore, I don't think the city's actual name is going to be Babylon nor will its location be that of ancient Babylon, but rather Babylon will be the essence of its character, of its nature. 
So my conclusion is this. The term great city refers to the capital of finance and commerce of the Antichrist, at the time of the Antichrist's wicked kingdom. And the reason that no name is supplied for that great city might be because it didn't exist yet in John's day. However, it may already exist in our time. And indeed, it will exist in the end times. So the meaning of verse 19 is that this center of world commerce and finance, wherever it is, whatever its actual name is, will be be hit with such a severe earthquake that fissures in the earth will literally open up, split it into three parts, and in addition, all the cities of the Gentile nations will be demolished. No doubt meaning the major cities, not every small town and village. In other words, the great city and all the other major cities of the Gentile nations are of the same wicked character and therefore are all part and parcel of God remembering Babylon the great in the sense that he is inflicting his judgment on everything that Babylon represented. Jerusalem, and hear this, Jerusalem would not be included in this. Because God handles his own people and his own city differently when judgment is involved. Remember, while God sees the wicked world in general as having the character of Babylon the Great, what character did we read that he said he sees Jerusalem as? Sodom and Egypt. Specifically we're told this. These are not the same things. And so they bring different judgments that result in different outcomes. Now verse 20 continues with an expanded description of this violent earthquake. It appears that it's going to be universal. The reference to islands fleeing, mountains disappearing has usually been taken more allegorically than literally by Bible commentators and you know what, especially so by the early church fathers. I'm only going to offer a couple of examples, but the point to be taken from their interpretations is to notice how quickly from the beginning of the church they've distanced themselves from the Old Testament prophets upon whose writings John's apocalypse depends. Instead, they've come up with some pretty fanciful explanations that sound ultra-spiritual but they have no basis in fact. From his commentary on the Apocalypse, Ocumenius says, by islands he speaks of Gentile churches. As the prophet says, the Lord has reigned, let the earth be glad and let the many islands rejoice. He calls them islands because they lifted their heads and rose above their bitter and distasteful idolatry. But that he refers to demons when he mentions the mountains. Even the holy psalmist shows, singing, The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, for he is coming. Primatius, another early church father, says, It is my view that the terms islands and also mountains, the church is signified on account of the greatness of its stability. (laughs) I don't think I need to add any more. As virtually every early church father I could find on this subject fell somewhere along the same lines as these two. My view is that there is no reason to take the meaning of Revelation 16.20 other than for what it says. The earthquake is going to be so violent that islands in the sea will move and mountains will collapse. You know, we already know that especially on the Pacific Ring of Fire that follows the coastlines of South and North America, as well as Asia, Asia, then turns south and finally east towards New Zealand, that 90% 
90% of the world's earthquakes come from there. This giant crack in the Earth's crust allows volcanoes to erupt both above and below the seas, regularly forming new islands and at times destroying existing ones. The famous island of Krakatoa that was primarily a giant volcano blew up in 1883 and essentially obliterated it. So it is likely that this sort of activity is what is contemplated only on a massive scale, something, by the way, that's already known as to be entirely possible. Now, as for these enormous hailstones of verse 21, this brings us right back to the plagues of Egypt. The supernatural hail that fell on Egypt was not only incredibly rare, but it was mixed with fire. Here, the supernatural hail is simply enormous in size. Nothing could stand up to giant 70 or 100 pound chunks of ice falling at terrifying velocity from the sky. We should note here that every type of plague heaped upon Egypt has now been used to punish wicked humankind except for the death of the firstborn. And what was humanity's response to these judgments? Instead of humbly falling down in awestruck worship and pleading for mercy, they curse God. They curse God for their troubles, demonstrating the same hardened hearts that we saw with Pharaoh. These are not only the unredeemed, these are the unredeemable. Let's move on now to chapter 17. Open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 17. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 1548. And folks, this one is a doozy. ready? Then came one of the angels with the seven bowls and he said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great whore who is sitting by many waters. And the kings of the earth went whoring with her, and the people living on earth had become drunk with the wine of her whoring. And he carried me off in the spirit to a desert, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast filled with blasphemous names and having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and glittered with gold, precious stones, pearls. In her hand was a gold cup. It was filled with the obscene and filthy things produced by her whoring. On her forehead was written a name with a hidden meaning. Babel the Great, mother of whores and of the earth's obscenities. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of God's people, that is, from the blood of the people who testify about Yeshua. And on seeing her, I was altogether astounded. And then the angel said to me, Why are you astounded? I will tell you the hidden meaning of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that was carrying her. The beast you saw once was, now is not, and will come up from the abyss, but it's on its way to destruction. The people living on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life since the founding of the world will be astounded to see the beast that once was, now is not, but is to appear. Now this calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven hills on which the woman is sitting, but there are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is living now, the other is yet to come, and when he does come, he must remain only a little while. The beast which once was and now is not is an eighth king, and he comes from the seven and is on its way to destruction. The ten horns you saw are ten kings who have not yet begun to rule. But they receive power as kings for one hour along with the beast. They have one mind. And they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will go to war against the lamb, but the lamb will defeat them because he is Lord of lords and king of kings. 
and those who are called, chosen, and faithful will overcome along with him. Then he said to me, The waters that you saw where the whore is sitting are peoples, crowds, nations, and languages. Now as for the ten horns that you saw and the beast, they'll hate the whore. They'll bring her to ruin, leave her naked, eat her flesh, and consume her with fire. For God put it in their hearts to do what will fulfill His purpose, that is to be of one mind, and give their kingdom to the beast until God's words have accomplished their intent. The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. Well, that ought to keep us busy for a while. I'd like you to observe something. Beginning with chapter 14, the final judgment of Babylon the Great was prophesied even though we're still still dealing with it in ever greater detail in chapter 17. And we will be through chapter 19. Revelation 14.8 Another angel, a second one, followed saying, She has fallen, she has fallen. Babel the great. She made all the nations drink the wine of God's fury caused by her whoring. Now the point I'm making is that we have to be careful not to take John's visions as though they are being rolled out in chronological order. Rather, at times, we get these brief snapshots. Only later to have the subject revisited. And then we get more explicit details. Thus, after... The, the statement a few chapters ago about Babylon the Great has fallen, the first verse of now chapter 17 says, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great whore who was sitting by many waters. So this is but an extension of the bold judgments. As the opening verse explains that it was one of the angels who held one of the seven bowls, that is going to further explore just how Babylon the Great is going to be judged. Here, Babylon the Great is given another figurative title as the Great Harlot or Great Whore. And the titles represent a distinct characteristic, an attribute of Babylon. What we are reading about is not a person, but rather it is figurative of the character of the entire kingdom. Satan's kingdom that at the moment is being run by the Antichrist. The phrase that the great harlot was established upon many waters means that many peoples and nations were under her spell and likely under her sovereignty. In the Bible, a harlot or a prostitute or a person who commits adultery, they were all guilty of the same basic crime, idolatry. Verse 2 explains that this harlot has committed adultery with many kings of the earth. That is, she has lured the leaders of nations away from worship and obedience to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and into worshiping and following non-gods. Often their non-gods are merely the riches and wealth of the world and its many forbidden pleasures. Today those non-gods include science and intellectualism. The harlot has also seduced the earth dwellers. Earth dwellers are those common humans who are worldly. This is in contrast to God worshippers whose eyes and hopes are set on heaven. And we're told that these world leaders and their citizens have become intoxicated, drunk with the passion 
of this harlot's impurity. They desire to come into union with her. To be exactly what she is. To have it, whatever it is she has. I want to pause here for a moment to define in common terms what's being described. <laughs> Simply, it's the opposite of everything godly. Babylon and the harlot are empowered by Satan, the primordial source of evil. And what is evil? Everything that God is against. Whatever is God's character, Satan's is the opposite. The harlot by nature is therefore impure, unclean. Consorting with her contaminates her partner with impurity. Matter of fact, this is a principle taught back in Leviticus about the nature of ritual impurity. It's contagious. Thus, what we're going to find in chapter 17 is a series of actions and descriptions that are also metaphors. Metaphors that depict an intentional mocking and mimicking of God. It's like the way a mirror automatically reverses an image. Depending on your Bible version, the final words of verse 2 say that the people of earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication or with the wine of her immorality. Here are some words that were meant to take literally and symbolically at the same time. See, the Greek word that's being translated as fornication or immorality is porneia, from which we get the English word pornography. This literally means that all of God's laws and commands on sexuality and sexual behavior have been turned on their head. And the commission of immorality has become celebrated and therefore declared as good. <coughs> Symbolically, it means illicit unions between the harlot and her clients. We have a saying in the West about making a deal with the devil in order to achieve or acquire something important to us. Or perhaps closely associating ourselves with a person or a government, a business, even a religion that is anti-God if it accomplishes a goal for us. That is, while the illicit union, the illicit relationship doesn't necessarily have to be sexual, Nonetheless, we are willing to join ourselves to that which God finds wicked and immoral in His sight. Well, God sees these actions as a spiritual defection from His kingdom into Satan's kingdom. Now, as odd as it might seem to you, there are Bible commentators who believe that in chapter 17, the harlot of Babylon is Israel and Jerusalem. J. Massenburg Ford is one example. These commentators, like Ford, will often quote Hosea as their primary source. There's reasons given for this viewpoint. I suspect, rather than the quoted verses, it comes mostly from this underlying mindset that stems from a rather widespread fundamental doctrine within Christianity that God has dispensed with Israel and adopted the Gentile church in its place. For some reason, these commentators tend to overlook or minimize the fundamental principle that we just discussed. That biblically speaking, Babylon always represents the opposite, the antithesis of everything good and everything promised to Israel and Jerusalem. It's not that Israel and Jerusalem have remained pure, but rather a close reading of Hosea, for example, shows that despite Israel and Jerusalem's sins and faithlessness towards God, nonetheless, he has mercy on them because they are set apart and chosen. 
And so instead of destroying them or sending them permanently away, he punishes them, sometimes by exile, then takes them back. And much of this actually occurs in the end times. And it's demonstrated for us by Ezekiel 37. I'm going to read to you a short section from Ezekiel 37, verses 21 to 28. Then say to them that Adonai Elohim says, I will take the people of Israel from among the nations where they have gone and gather them from every side and bring them back to their own land. I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel. One king will be king for them all. They will no longer be two nations and they will never again be divided into two kingdoms. They will never again defile themselves with their idols, their detestable things or any of their transgressions. But I will save them from all the places where they've been living and sinning and I will cleanse them so that they will be my people and I will be their God. And my servant David will be king over them and all of them will have one shepherd and they will live by my rulings and keep and observe my regulations. They will live in the land I gave to Jacob my servant where your ancestors lived. They will live there, they, their children, their grandchildren forever. And David my servant will be their leader forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them, an everlasting covenant. I will give to them, increase their numbers, set my sanctuary among them forever. My home will be with them. I will be their God. They will be my people. The nations will know that I am Adonai who sets Israel apart as holy when my sanctuary is with them forever. Now this tenderness and intimacy God is showing towards his people is certainly not what is happening with Babylon in the book of Revelation. Here's Babylon's destiny, according to the Bible. In Revelation 18.21, Then a mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a great millstone and hurled it into the sea, saying, With violence like this will this great city Babel be hurled down and it will never be found again. Revelation 19.1 After I heard these things, I heard what sounded like the roar of a huge crowd in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! The victory, the glory, the power of our God, for His judgments are true and just. He has judged the great whore who corrupted the earth with her whoring. He has taken vengeance on her who has the blood of His servants on her hands. And a second time they say, Hallelujah! Her smoke goes up forever and ever. Babylon is the evil world system with its evil leader, Satan. It's not Israel. It's not Jerusalem. Well, verse 3 of Revelation 17 says that John was carried off in the spirit. This is a rather standard experience with Old Testament prophets. In the spirit, meaning John was not physically transported there, John found himself in a wilderness or or, or a desert. Now a wilderness is indeed a desolate place. But it is also a place where dependence upon God is at its highest and when preparation for a divinely assigned task occurs. It was in the wilderness that Moses went to meet God in the burning bush. It was in the wilderness that John the Baptist was sent to prepare the way for Christ. It was in the wilderness for 40 years that Israel learned to depend on God. And when they did, finally, then he allowed them into the promised land. In this ecstatic state, John was shown a woman sitting on a scarlet beast which was full of blasphemous names. This beast had seven heads and ten horns. Now moments ago I told you that in this chapter we're going to see Satan, Babylon, and the harlot mocking and mimicking God. So sure enough, we find a woman sitting upon a beast. Back in chapter 12, we saw another and different woman. In chapter 12, we read this. Now a great sign was seen in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun 
Under her feet, the moon. On her head, a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and about to give birth, and she screamed in the agony of labor. Another sign was seen in heaven. There was a great dragon with seven heads and ten horns on his head were seven royal crowns. Skipping to verse 5. She gave birth to a son, a male child, the one who will rule all the nations with a staff of iron. But her child was snatched up to God in his throne, and she fled into the desert, where she has a place prepared by God so that she can be taken care of for 1,260 days. Next, there was a battle in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But it was not strong enough to win. So there was no longer any place for them in heaven. Can you see what's happening here? In chapter 12, we have the righteous woman clothed with the sun, a crown of 12 stars symbolizing Israel, giving birth to the Savior, and this is a sign in heaven. Then we see this dragon with seven heads and ten horns, Satan, who wants to harm the pregnant woman and devour her child. He wants to thwart God's plans for redemption. Next, there's a battle in heaven for the sake of this woman and child. And Satan loses. He's permanently kicked out. Major point. These events are all occurring in the spiritual sphere in heaven. But now, Revelation chapter 17, the scene shifts to planet Earth. We have another and very different woman an evil woman bearing the opposite characteristics of the righteous woman of chapter 12. The righteous woman of chapter 12 represents ideal Israel and God's plans for redemption. The evil woman of chapter 17 is the harlot of Babylon and she represents the evil world system that wants to challenge God's plans. In chapter 12, Satan confronts the woman Israel in the spiritual sphere and then God and his angels defeat Satan in heaven. Now in chapter 17 we have Satan's earthly physical counterpart the beast with seven heads and ten horns. This is the Antichrist a real live physical human being who teams up with the harlot of Babylon which is the physical, tangible, wicked world system. And what are they teaming up for, we're told? War. War. This war to determine who will have eternal dominion over earth will be a shadow and a pattern after the war that was fought in heaven. Ultimately, we'll have the same result. And as we're going to find a little bit later in this chapter, the war on earth will be between the forces of Satan and his Antichrist versus the forces of God and his Christ, the Lamb, at the Battle of Armageddon in Israel. And I think we'll stop here and pick up chapter 17 next time.